6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, Dr. Chuck Missler's daily radio program connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. This series is entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In today's study, Dr. Missler begins his session entitled, The Birth of a Nation. Well, we are going to review our five of our Learn the Bible in 24 Hours. In this session, we're going to talk about the birth of a nation, and we're going to attempt to cover the remainder of the Torah. We covered Genesis in the previous sessions. We're going to summarize in this session Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. The next four to make up the five books of Moses, which are known in Hebrew as the Torah, sometimes called in the Greek version the Pentateuch. Genesis, of course, is the book of beginnings. The book of Exodus, of course, is the birth of the nation. This is the time where the nation Israel is literally begun. You can argue that it began with when God declared war on Satan in Genesis 3.15. The woman there, Eve, is profiled all the way through Israel to the woman in Revelation 12, which we'll deal with, of course, when we get there. But the birth of the nation. Leviticus is the book on holiness. It's the law of the, na of the nation. But it also serves to give us insight on what kinds of things please God in terms of worship. We talk that, we use that term so glibly. Leviticus is really the groundwork for all of that. The book of Numbers is a strange name, but it's basically the wilderness wanderings. And then, of course, Deuteronomy is the wrap-up. It's actually three sermons by Moses and the record of his death. So those are the five books of Moses. Of course, we're in our five to try to get a perspective of the, uh, the last four. I want to comment on something some people will speak of dispensations. And there's a tradition here that uh, you take the history of man and you can divide it, you can parse it into segments by, from the Bible. The first segment being the age of innocence, starting, of course, in Genesis. The age of conscience in chapter 3 and on, human government after uh, Moses' flood and so forth. Then the promise that was given to Abraham launches a whole other dispensation. And, of course, the giving of the law, which we're going to experience here in the book of Exodus. Then, of course, the church period, which is the New Testament period, if you will. And finally, the kingdom, when it's finally set up. These are segments that are sometimes called dispensations. Don't get confused by sometimes the sixth of these is called the age of grace. But that's a misleading because grace is always the premise in all seven of these. But uh, they are, they are, each one has its distinctives in terms of, of the visibility they had and what the ground rules were and so forth. If you look at that in terms of our timeline that we've had on our system so far, innocence, of course, conscience, human government, promise, then the law, which is the, the nation, and then uh, the church, which is sort of a parenthesis that we'll get that amplified when we're in the book of Daniel. And then when the church is gathered and uh, Christ uh, returns to set up his, we have the kingdom then. 
These are sometimes called dispensations, and they're sometimes parsed slightly differently. This is the classic way you'll find it in many commentaries. However, there's another way to view it, and that is that take the promise and the law together, which that's the history of Israel, in a sense. It starts there. And the church is, in a sense, a parenthesis, because there is a segment remaining, the 70th week of Daniel, the 77s. We'll talk about that when we get to the book of Daniel, and then, of course, the kingdom finally. So those are perspectives that we'll elaborate as we go. But uh, there are three major promises in the Scripture. God's covenant with Abraham we talked about when we uh, Genesis 12 and Amplified in Genesis 15 and 17. Uh, we're now going to experience God's covenant with the nation Israel. It's going to surface in several forms here. But basically, the covenant's very simple. If they faithfully served Him, they'd prosper. If they forsook Him, they would be destroyed, taken out of the land, whatever. That has been their history from the beginning. Their ups and downs are profiled throughout the Bible and their future ones also. And the history of Israel is one of the incredible miracles. And God is not through with Israel yet. Their role in the, is a very, very, going to be increasingly conspicuous as we get to the final climax. There will also be a covenant with David that we'll talk about, that his family would produce the Messiah, who will reign over uh, God's people forever. And we'll get to that when we get into Samuel. But in this panorama of history, it's been sort of our backbone of our presentations, we're going to be now moving from the call of Abraham forward. We're going to go through the Exodus, all the way Exodus up to the monarchy in the next two sessions. We're going to talk about the wanderings and the conquest of Canaan and so on. The book of Exodus, actually, the name in the Hebrew means the outgoing, the Exodus. And uh, the entire race... Uh, will be shedding the shackles of generation-long servitude. We finished um, Genesis when, they, when the whole family had been maneuvered by God down to Egypt for their well-being. But uh, as time goes on, a pharaoh that knew not Joseph comes to power, and they are made slaves for 400 years. And uh, we're going to see them uh, in Exodus, be delivered from that. They're going to migrate then to a new country and emerge from this whole experience as a nation. In other words, they'll have a corporate life in addition to their family and tribal life. They entered Egypt as a family, and they emerged from Egypt as a nation. It's an incredible, incredible saga, if you will. In fact, is there any more amazing national spectacle in all of history? A family going down there in slavery and coming out as a nation, and a nation that has endured despite repeated, organized, global attempts to wipe it out. That's been a pattern. It's not just the uh, Nazi Holocaust that we're so familiar with in recent times, but from the beginning... There's been attempt after attempt after attempt. The Egyptians, of course, uh, uh, literally killing all the babies and so forth, uh, all the way through, again and again and again. And in the Persian Empire under Haman, again, an organized attempt to wipe out all Jews on the planet Earth. And we get to the New Testament period, the same thing. So it's really astonishing to see the focus of the world at large 
on this peculiar people that God has separated for His own purposes. And it continues. There are three main subjects. The Exodus itself, which will be the first 18 chapters of this book. And we're going to see that God sends ten plagues to accomplish this separation. And then, of course, the Passover, which is celebrated to this day and is also prophetic in some surprising ways to many. And, of course, that involved the crossing of the Red Sea, that very spectacular thing that was, among other places, uh, celebrated in uh, Cecil B. DeMille's famous movie on the subject. Then the law is given, the Ten Commandments and a lot of other things. The Mosaic Covenant is collectively the label for all of that. And then we have a very strange thing also before the book closes. If I was doing the Ten Commandments movie, I would have had Charlton Heston come down from the mountain, not just with two tables of stone, but a group of blueprints under the other arm. Because what he came down with was not just the Ten Commandments, which of course we know and celebrate, but the specifications, very detailed specifications, for a portable sanctuary that is a, the mechanism by which the ruler of the universe engineered so that he could dwell among his people. Bizarre idea. God is everywhere. Yes, he is in one sense, but he also very specifically dwelt with these people on this portable uh, sanctuary called the tabernacle. Uh, occupies a good portion. In fact, there's more said about it than any other single subject in the Bible. And that, of course, associated with that is the priesthood, which is also ordained. So, so Exodus, a little background here. It seems to be necessitated because as these Hebrew, this Hebrew family down there over those four centuries multiplied, it expanded and expanded and expanded. And there is, it may surprise you to know that the Pharaoh in Egypt was an Egyptian. And I'll get back to that, I'll get that in a minute. But that's one reason he was probably insecure as this ethnic constituency grew. And so they oppressed them, made slaves of them, and that was the ordeal that lasted 400. They were down there for 430 years, but they were oppressed for 400. It's interesting that their uh, rescue, their exodus from Egypt, was anticipated long before. Moses, you may recall, was exiled. He was, he was heir to the throne, murdered an Egyptian, and uh, was in exile for 40 years in Midian. Midian, that's northeastern Arabia, is where they will spend as a nation 40 years wandering. So that was ground he knew, in a sense. He, he, he was a shepherd there uh, with Yvonne de Carlo for, you know, 40 years. And uh, so he was that was God's, uh, God prepared him in Egypt because he's trained for the crown. He was educated as Pharaoh's own adopted son until he was separated. He chose and chose to be separated as he discovered who he really was and so forth. Then his preparation in Midian is, so there's 80 years of preparation before we get to the Exodus. And he's going to be leading them for 40 years more through the wilderness. And it's going to have some surprising results. And so the exit, of course, is precipitated by a message from God, the famous burning bush incident, and uh, Moses gets his mission. Israel's expansion uh, in Egypt, they were given by the, the Pharaoh that, uh, was, that was favored by Joseph and vice versa. 
they were given the choicest part of the land, right next to the delta, the land of Goshen. But then this Pharaoh that knew not Joseph raises to power, and he was an Assyrian. We, we learn that from Isaiah 52, verse 4. It's interesting, when you get to Acts chapter 7, we'll do that, of course, when we get there, but uh, Stephen, the young guy, uh, young boy, uh, is giving a lecture, a history lesson to the most august body in Hebrew circles, namely the Sanhedrin. And Acts 7 is a very interesting summary of his speech there. It's a summary of Israel's history. And it's interesting, there are a number of things we discover in that presentation that you wouldn't get by just reading the Old Testament. One of which is, he mentions that there was another Pharaoh that knew not Joseph, but he, in the Greek, there are two words for another, alos and heteros. If you want another of the same kind, you use alos. If you want another that's totally different, you use the word heteros. And he uses the word heteros, which is very strange, which means this Pharaoh was of a different uh, background, so forth, not just another Pharaoh, but a different kind. And it's a Isaiah that tips us off, that he was an Assyrian. Now you won't find this amplified in any Egyptology, but Egyptology's got some problems anyway, which we'll get to when we start talking about uh, Pharaoh Necho and some other things. But anyway, uh, this Pharaoh, of course, oppresses them. There's also a whole background as a vassal of the Hyksos and so forth that I won't get into here. But there's a lot of study worth doing there because the early uh, history of Egypt is a key part of all of this. But in any case, it's very likely that since he wasn't Egyptian, he was insecure in his throne, especially with the increase of this other ethnic group called the Hebrews. So the oppression was, and the enslavement of them was, was his response to that. So Moses stands out, of course, as probably next to Christ, of course, the most outstanding individual, certainly in the Old Testament, some would say in the Bible at large. And he was born during this oppression, but delivered from this government-ordained genocide that Pharaoh had ordered. And so God, in his own miraculous way, set this all up. And he ends up growing up, educated, realizing who he is, choosing his sides, ended up murdering an Egyptian. And so he's on, the, he's on the lamb in Midian. But he will be called by God and go back, and he will take this race of slaves, and he's going to lead them. He's going to mold them into a powerful nation that altered the entire course of history, everyone's history. So it's an exciting time. And of course, we have this burning bush issue. I think all of you are familiar with the story. Uh, but there's some interesting symbolism that many people may, may not be aware of. An acacia is, a, is the thorn bush of the desert. And it's interesting that we have a thorn bush there, and it's fired. A lot of bushes in the desert can catch fire by lightning and so forth. What makes this peculiar and caused him to um, take note of it and go investi investigate it is because it was burning but not consumed. It was burning but not consumed. So it's judged but not consumed. Now, if you rec if in the in the Levitical uh, symbolism here, the thorn bush symbolizes the curse, and the burning, of course, is being judged. But the fact that it's not consumed is, in effect, considered uh, rabbinically as a model of grace. And uh, it's interesting that when God speaks from that 
burning bush, he includes, among other things, his identity, his name. What name are you? He says, I am that I am. Ichyach asher ichyach, he claims. What's important to understand is that it was Jesus Christ who was speaking to Moses. He so declares in John chapter 8, verse 58. He, he claimed to be the voice of the burning bush. People say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Anyone that says that haven't read their Bible, certainly haven't even read, have read the Gospel of John. He claimed, that's why he was crucified, because of that claim. But with something else that I'd like to correct, when you watch the movie, The Ten Commandments, as I assume most of you have, uh, it's surprisingly accurate in many respects, but there's one misleading aspect that deserves comment. The, the script of the movie gives you the impression that the death of the firstborn of Egypt was, a, was retribution for Pharaoh's comment of the, going after the firstborn. And that's misleading because you'll discover when Moses is called at the burning bush, God predicts that it's going to take the death of the firstborn for Pharaoh to let them go. In other words, that was pre-known and pre-declared back in Exodus 4, not in Exodus 12, if you will, and so on. So, anyway, and I think most of us are aware of the fact that there were ten plagues that God sends upon the Egyptians. What you may not realize is that each one was geared specifically after a god they worshipped. The Nile was the lifeline of their economy. The waters turned to blood, and there's a number of their gods that was associated with the Nile. Then come the frogs, and there's a specific hect that they worshipped there. Then the lice, or sand flies, whatever they were, depending on that translation. And then were these scarabs. They're called swarms in the Hebrew, but it's pretty well understood that these are these dung beetles, these little scarabs. You know, when you buy Egyptian jewelry, you sometimes have the little scarab, the little beetle. Well, what that is, that's a dung beetle. And it symbolizes to them creation. Scholars speculate, they wonder why, probably because when animal feces fall on the trail, almost immediately from nowhere, these dung beetles come. And so they seem to come from n out of nothing, and so that's one reason why some people feel they, they looked at them as a symbol of creation. Amun-Ra being the top of that. Then there were some subsequent um, plagues with the animals, boils and ashes and hail and fire, and finally the locusts. And then darkness, darkness that was felt. This isn't just the absence of light. There's something else going on here. Each one of these, and I'm not going to take you through all the detail, links specifically to specific gods they worship. And then, of course, finally, finally, the firstborn. So Pharaoh's own dynasty, thus, is wiped out, which also explains why his successor probably would not be a descendant. But in any case, I'm, I'm always reminded when I go through Egypt. Um, we left Cairo and went up. When you get out of, out of the city, you, dri you drive along these roads, and next to the road there seems to be like a, a, ravine, a culvert, a cement culvert uh, with water in it, and these, the very extreme poverty in the villages. And when you look more closely, you realize that's not concrete, it's trash. And the water isn't is gray, blue-gray, it's polluted water. And you begin to realize 
that this, as you think about it, this country wasn't always a third world country. This country ruled the world at one time. But the scripture tells us we become like the gods we worship. And the top of the heap of their worship thing is the scarab, the dung beetle. And they're living on that kind of environment. And also, it's interesting that uh, the obsession of the uh, Egyptian heritage in terms of death, the mummies and the the whole, the whole uh, background is uh, uh, we become like the Kazi worship. So here's a country that w ruled the world at one time and today has become like the gods of worship. And we need to remember that. Is the world harsh, materialistic, unforgiving? If you, if you worship the world, you'll become harsh, materialistic, unforgiving. You'll become like the gods you worship. Scripture says that, Psalm 135, verse 18, and so forth. That's why it's important to worship Christ, because you'll become like the one you worship. But obviously the Egyptian Passover was the event. They still celebrate to this day, of course. It's a symbol of life. In fact, God instructs in the second verse of Exodus 12, this month shall be the beginning of months. That's why the Hebrews have two calendars. The civil calendar, which is Rosh Hashanah, starts in the fall, typically our September, October time period. But the, the religious calendar starts with the month of Nisan in the spring, because that's the month of the, uh, the Passover. And when God in, in institutes the Passover, he tells Moses, make this month the beginning of month. So they have two months, a civil year starting in September, or our September, roughly at that time, uh, first of Tishri, and then the, the religious calendar, uh, Nisan. And obviously, Passover symbolized not only life, but also liberty, because they were delivered from bondage. That's the key theme there. It's interesting that they were delivered by blood put on the doorposts. And if you go to your door and put blood on the top and the lintel, you'll end up doing a cross, of course, which is subtle, but worth mentioning. But it's interesting, it was not a basis of nationality. If you were an Egyptian and happened to be in a Jewish home that night, you were spared. If you were Jewish and didn't put blood on the doorposts, the death angel would take the firstborn of your house. It was basis of the blood, not their nationality. Important issue. And of course, it also, Passover also speaks of fellowship because it memorializes a feast to this very day. They say every, in the Jewish home, that the peak of their year in many respects is the Passover celebration. And actually, uh, in the month of Nisan, there's actually three feasts. The Feast of Passover, Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of Firstfruits. But they're usually collectively spoken of as Passover. It's also prophetic. It's very important. We're going to talk a lot about this as we go forward that each of the feasts of Moses are not only commemorative of some historical I issue, and they each are, but it's also prophetic. And Jesus Christ is called our Passover lamb. In fact, when John the Baptist first introduces Jesus publicly, twice, he introduces him, very strange title, Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. Now, it's familiar to us, to our ears, let's not uh, uh, lose the fact that that's a strange title. 
but it's of course a Passover illusion because that the Lamb of God, he was, he was given as an offering for our sin. And in John 1, of course, twice. Egypt now is also viewed as a type of the world, a symbol of material wealth and power. We probably have a hard time imagining the dominance of Egypt in that era. It was, of course, ruled by a despotic prince. Pharaoh was a despot. Again, though, it's another way that is idiomatic, if you will, of the world. It's a type or a model or a, a metaphor of the world. And Pharaoh, of course, becomes, in a sense, a type of Satan, the adversary of God's people. Egypt also represented fleshly wisdom and false religion. They worshipped all these uh, various gods, of course, rather than the living God. We're going to talk more about the wisdom of the Egyptians uh, uh, later on. But Egypt was organized on a basis of force, ambition, and pleasure. The world as we know it is also organized under Satan and uh, on a basis of force, ambition, and pleasure. Egypt persecuted the people of God, and so does the world. You need to recognize that the world at large is anti-Bible. The whole tension of the Middle East is, a God, is the world's challenge to the Abrahamic Covenant. And recognize, too, that Jesus promised you, as a Christian, as a follower of Christ, that you would have persecution. Living in America, we've been immune to most of that. But uh, we need to recognize that we, don't, we shouldn't have the arrogance as Christians in America to presume that we're going to be exempt from what most of the body of Christ in most of the world for most of the last 1900 years have had to endure. It's called persecution. And so more of that's coming. But Egypt was overthrown by divine judgment, and this world will also be, and that's what's profiled in the book of Revelation, when the one who purchased the world, namely the Lamb of God, takes title to that which he purchased. And of course we'll get to that when the time comes. You've been listening to Dr. Chuck Missler, teaching through his series entitled, Learn the Bible in 24 Hours, here on 6640. If you would like further information about materials available from Dr. Missler, please contact us through this station or visit our website at khouse.org. Until next time, when Dr. Missler continues this series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.